This is Building Up, brought to you by Watt, Teeter, Hoffer & Fitzgerald and the Vertex Companies, where you get insights from industry experts, reviewing topics construction professionals deal with on a daily basis, observations on new developments within the industry, and practical guidance from Vertex's experts and the attorneys at Watt, Teeter to help your business thrive in the construction industry. Welcome to Building Up. We're here today with Conor McGuire. He is the Director of Sustainability at Columbia, a top 10 construction management firm in New England. Connor has been with Columbia for 10 years, and he is very active on LinkedIn with respect to what Columbia is up to in terms of sustainability and sustainability in the overall industry. And that's what we're here to talk with him about today, um, just kind of sustainability and construction and how Columbia is leading the pack, um, things that Connor's seeing things that Connor hopes to see. So thanks for joining us today, Connor. We're looking forward to our chat. Yeah, thank you very much for the uh, the invitation. And I'm excited to be here. And hopefully, uh, some people find some usefulness out of the conversation. So let's just start with the basics, right? I mean, what does sustainability and construction even mean? I mean, it's a nice buzzword and a good concept. But uh, what does it mean? Do you wish it actually meant something different or what do you want it to look like? Well, so like you said, I've been in uh, this particular role uh, at Columbia for about 10 years, a little bit more. And um, I guess for me, you know, I, I got into construction out of an engineering degree that I got in college. And, you know, the short story I usually say is that, you know, my college education was talking about, you know, how does how does the world work and how do you make it work better? That's kind of like an engineering degree in a nutshell, right? It's like figure it out, optimize it, make it better. And so when I got into building construction, I still had that kind of engineering mindset and um, was looking at the current state of um, how things were designed and built, understood that fairly well after a few years and then thought, how do we make it better? So it kind of migrated into that. Um, you're probably familiar with lead projects. That's the, uh, you know, that's generally how construction sustainability is defined. Um, but there are a lot of different tangents that have kind of gone beyond lead. Um, you know, the, the baseline of what lead was when it was launched many years ago was showing a lot of leadership. That's the L in lead. Um, but there's a lot of intelligent people trying to solve this, you know, climate crisis that we're in right now. So um, there's a lot of good tangents. Uh, so lead's not the only answer to those problems now. And that's, that's actually good because it gives people and, and builders uh, options to try to, um, to figure out how to, how to make better buildings, basically. So I guess how did Columbia decide or how did your management decide that this role needed to exist and, and do all management firms, should they have someone who's focused on sustainability? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely a growing um, position. I see it at a lot more of the CM firms now, uh, construction management firms. Um, and so because, especially with, with different certification systems and the technicality part of it, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of details that are not captured in a typical construction management education. If you went, you know, if you just went to straight to school to that, or if you were doing it for a career and you didn't get into the weeds on all these different requirements. So it is helpful to have a specialist or an in-house, you know, specialist. Sometimes they, they hire it out as a, as a consultant. Um, but it seems like more and more that instead of having that outside party, they do, they do develop and create the internal roles. Um, so a bunch of people that I actually know through the network might've even come from design firms or other areas of construction and kind of migrated into this role. Um, you know, your first question talked about, you know, what do you want it to mean? 
Um, you know, that kind of relates to this idea that there are other sustainability professionals at these construction firms now. And so one thing that came out through the conversations and networking that, that we do through, the, uh, through those types of roles, having sustainability people at construction firms, was that we were talking about some of the national rankings of green contractors. You know, they, they make these lists every year of green contractors. And the metric that was being used was basically the dollar volume of certified lead projects and whoever had the most dollar volume of lead projects was the greenest contractor. And in those conversations over a beer, we realized, you know, this this is kind of like riding the coattails of the client because the client makes the decision to get certified or not. It's not the contractor. And so if you happen to be a big contractor and you have clients that are going for green building certifications, then according to those lists, they said, okay, well, then you are the greenest contractor. And we were having this kind of existential conversation about, well, what do you do when the client's not asking for it? It's probably a better way to kind of measure the greenness of the contractor. Like, are we green building mercenaries or are we actually, is this part of the ethic of what the building company does? And so through those conversations, and there's a few different groups that we participated in, we, we kind of made a a framework of the things that contractors can do outside of, outside of, uh, you know, the client's request. And, and we broke it down, you know, similar to lead, there's a few different categories, uh, talks about employee wellness at the uh, contractor level, carbon emissions, construction, waste management. It's a big thing for contractors. There's a lot of waste generated, um, material selection and, you know, water management. And we have these conversations too, internal to the, um, our own company where, you know, people are so concerned about recycling at home, which is good, and I wouldn't tell people not to do that. But if you work at a construction company, like the, the volume of C&D waste for your yearly job site versus your employees, there's like orders of magnitude difference. So really trying to figure out some of these problems at a work scale, uh, and this is probably for listeners out there, this is probably true for your employee uh, employment places too. You know, if you're doing everything right at home, you probably want your employer to do the right thing too. And, you know, do you guys understand the amount of waste generated and where that's going and how it's being processed? So trying to answer these big questions and, and solve these problems at work became a big priority a few years ago for us. And we're in that process now of trying to, we, we set up a pathway and now we're on that path and we haven't completed it yet. So when you're trying to, I guess, implement these sustainable design, um, you know, in, in construction, you know, what, what do you think is the most important aspect of that? You know, again, I know you're saying how, you know, over the past few years, there's been a you know, bunch more um, companies, uh, you know, creating this sustainability role within the con- companies themselves. But, uh, you know, in trying to actually implement these policies, what do you see as the most challenging part? And, you know, what is the most important part? I think that the, the the most challenging part, and pr- maybe because of that, it's the most important part, is um, trying to get the engagement level that you want is really can be hard, right? It's like there's a core group of people that are going to care no matter what, and there's a core group of people that aren't going to care no matter what. But then in between, you have the vast majority of people who are very busy. And you know, I say frequently, I can't make a 25-hour day, right? Like we all... We all have our jobs to do. I happen to specialize in sustainability, but there's there's 200 employees at my company that don't specialize in sustainability. So if I'm thinking of processes or um, changes that I want to make to have a better outcome, I can't make it take longer or be harder because they, you know, they, they are going to have, uh, there's going to be a problem with traction then, right? And I've said before to um, sometimes when I, when I speak to people, like if there's a 10-step process and I want to make it a 12-step process, like that's like 
dead on arrival, right? But if I can take a 10-step process and make it a nine-step process, so their life's a little easier and get a better outcome, like those are the types of situations that I try to create and try to figure out like, how do I take their current workflow and schedule and make it a little bit easier, a little bit you know faster, a little bit um, more convenient and get a better outcome? Um, and so when we have our categories that, that I mentioned, you know, on the top two for the engagement piece, um, you know, we have a couple guiding principles that we released on this document that we put out. And it talks about, you know, number one, the apolitical nature of really what we're trying to do, which is to continually improve our work to align with clean air and clean water and clean soil. So in my mind, you know, whether you like to take solitary meditative hikes in the wilderness and, you know, be at one with nature like that, or if you like to go fishing and, you know, uh, or hunting or any of those things, if you're, no matter how you are spending your free time, uh, you know, a lot of people like to try to connect outside again, whether it's blasting through the woods and snowmobiles or going, you know, backcountry backpacking, whatever, like meeting somewhere where it's apolitical, like clean air, clean water, clean soil. That's a fundamental thing for us. Um, the second part of our guiding principle is that protecting nature is really protecting ourselves and vice versa. Protecting ourselves is protecting nature. Um, the idea of the environment and not our environment, I feel like that's a disconnect that, um, that, you know, we'd like to get better connected and realize that like literally the oxygen we're breathing right now is, is from our environment. It's not something that we're saving out there for the polar bears or whatever. Um, so part of that is in our strategy for sustainability, we have employee wellness as part of the goal so that not only are we saying, oh, you know, we're going to cut carbon emissions and that's going to help us in this really, um, you know, not a very tangible way, but we're also adding like HEPA air cleaners to the job site filters so that we're saying we're protecting you, the people that work for us and the people on our job sites, but we're also trying to protect the larger environment and, and, and be part of this, you know, sustainable building process of a cleaner air um, future. I thought it was interesting before how you were saying that firms are being ranked based on just the value of green projects and comes down basically from the owner's decision to make a sustainable project. And then I would assume the next level is on a company standpoint, you say, well, maybe sustainability is financially beneficial to us. If our fleet is low emissions and, you know, or we've got electrical electric vehicle fleet, eventually there's a ROI that, that makes sense for us. But I like that you've also added these kind of core principles and core values that define that. So what do, what would you say to an owner who's maybe who, who looks at you guys and doesn't see, you know, the value in this for us, for our environment, but says, well, it must cost you guys more to be for us to hire you. Uh, is there any, do you guys have a, a response to that? Or do you say, no, it doesn't actually cost more. We're just, you know, we're more efficient as a company because of these things that we do. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. The, the, the items that, and that's, that's again, why I have a job is I'm, I'm trying to figure out where you can kind of sneak these better practices in that actually um, aren't these big cost ad, right? Because if, you know, if I had the budget of NASA or whatever, I'm sure I could do a million things that I can't do right now, but it's really trying to figure out where are these leverage points where you can, you can get um, the best value for your input, whether it's time or money. And it's also stuff that's in our, um, in our general, um, like, like a, like a standard operating policy across the board. So an example, of this might be that, um, and, and for about two years now, we've been doing this where 
there's an indoor air quality plan on lead projects that requires a certain level of you know air filtration and cleanliness and all these different practices that, c- that create a um, like a cleaner worksite, both physically clean and the air quality, right? And so previously we had two different types of job sites. We had job sites implementing the air quality plan and job sites where we didn't have to do it, so it wasn't done. And that was kind of like the the standard going back forever. It was like it wasn't it wasn't a thing we had to do. And so the fact that we had two different operating procedures actually caused a little bit of confusion because when we had a project team that was not on a lead project and then it went over to a lead project and had to do indoor air quality, the supers and the PMs were like, wait, what do we have to do on this project? Is this one like that? And so the inefficiency of just kind of not knowing which path we were on, we figured, you know what, let's let's change the baseline. We'll go across the whole company, do indoor air quality plan across the whole company. There's one process that um, is standardized and that standardization created a situation where the time and energy that was put into trying to discern which path they're supposed to be on, it was just every project's the same. It's the same thing you did on your last project. It's the same thing you're gonna do on your next project. And so the the time savings there, you know, time is money, of course, um, that kind of created the optimization where even though the plan itself requires, you know, you got to buy some extra air filters, you got to do a little maintenance, making sure the stuff's clean. But the fact that you're saving time on implementing the strategies, that seemed to be a good a good way they kind of washed out. So it was it was a cost that was um, it was cost neutral, and it's not something that's passed on. It's not like uh, something that would then have to be paid for by the client. Interesting. So, so are there any you know newer technologies or you know somewhat recent breakthroughs uh, that are, I guess, making your life a little easier in finding those leverage points to really create the value um, for the, on these projects? Ah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, if we slide into like the carbon emission category, you know, we did an analysis last year. We did our first carbon reporting, and um, you know, it was surprising to us, but maybe, you know, in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been, you know, we're, we're a contracting company, a construction management firm, and we do a lot of driving. Our superintendents do a lot of driving. Our project managers do a lot of driving for job sites. Cause unlike some businesses that have the same office every day, if you're by the T, you know, or the, uh, you know, the transit system, then, you know, you might have a relatively low transit footprint for your employees, but you know, the nature of our work is we drive everywhere for the jobs. Um, and so we did an analysis uh, of last year's numbers, and it turned out that it was you know, roughly like 85% of our carbon emissions for scope one was related to gas cards for trucks and cars and all that. And so what would we have done if this was you know, five years ago? There weren't a lot of options. It was like you have to drive around, right? So some of the newer tech now to, uh, to help us out with this carbon reduction is you know, you're probably uh, familiar with this emerging onslaught of new EVs that are coming out from all the different manufacturers. Yep. So that's a way that kind of helps us say, you know, how do we transition from from a fossil fuel um, transportation for for our uh, for our company into this, um, you know, electrified version? And so we've already, you know, at our at our corporate offices, we have free car charging for all employees. And we've had that for a few years now, actually, almost five years. And um, so if you if you want to plug in at the office for free, you can do it. There's no charge for the electricity. There's no charge for the parking because we're in a suburban location. So we have you know ample parking. And um, it's allowing that transition to happen and trying to reduce some of the barriers because you know, right now the vehicles are a little bit more pricey to purchase. So if we have somebody who wants to buy one of those or lease one of them and then essentially get the uh, fuel for free, then then that's an option. Um, and that goes for people at the company that, you know, have gas cards or not. 
we realized that that wasn't super equitable because we have a lot of job site superintendents, et cetera, that don't come to the office every day. So a couple of years after that initial um, office location, we said, you know what, on job sites, anybody that wants an electrified um, you know, truck or whatever, if they want to get a plug for it, we'll put the plug in for free and they can charge at work. And wow. that's going to dovetail nicely with um, the fact that we're starting to see some electrified equipment on job sites too, which is again, part of our long-term path and plan is to get, you know, the, the, you know, mini excavators, the Bobcats, like all these things that right now, this is like the first or second year that the companies are coming out with electrified construction equipment. Mm-hmm. And so having those plugs on site are going to be handy, not only for the superintendent who maybe plugs his truck in, during the day when the equipment's out working, but then when he leaves for the day, they can swap and then the, um, the equipment can get plugged in overnight and be ready for the next day. Now those are been, again, I'm just very curious. So it's like the first iteration of the equipment as of now that are more EV type. Yeah. They're just, they're just, okay. as far as I know, they're just starting to get launched. So like most of the model years are like, you know, 20, 21, 22. So, and they're, they're pretty rare still, but we're trying to, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing, right? It's like, how right. do you, you know, get every, the equipment out there if you need the charging infrastructure and, and which do you do first? So another thing we're trying to do, and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you guys can, you know, can do the same thing is that we're advocating in meetings with the job site trailers for construction to try to get them when we wire up the job site trailer. Typically, you know, they don't have a ton of um, capacity for, for uh to add the EV stations right now, but when they refurbish or building new, we want them to build into the panel enough capacity and put an exterior plug on. So instead of having to customize this thing every time, it would be awesome if you wire up the job site trailer and there's automatically a live, you know, EV charging plug on the outside of the trailer. Um, and you know, I think it's going to be used very frequently. Like I said, this equipment's coming. How do we prepare for it? So um, we're, we want to try to get the plugs out in front of the uh, equipment would be a, a good way to do it and get the carbon emissions down. And, you know, there's also noise restrictions in some areas. So if you're using electrified equipment, it's not as noisy. You know, the uh, the time you can start or end construction might go a little bit later because it's not running diesel trucks and all that noise and stuff. So there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit. There's carbon, there's particulate matter, there's noise, there's all this stuff. So the writing is on the wall. So getting into maybe some of the <clears throat> project level sustainability, the things that are going to get either baked into the design that you're advising on pre-design or that need to get you know incorporated because they're meeting a, a certain certification requirement. First off, let's settle the debate. You're the, you're the guy on this. Is it net zero or zero net? Uh, I like the the way that you can do the acronym. Like ZNE is a little easier to say, I think. Z, so I say zero net energy because you can abbreviate it easier versus NZ. Like, <laughs> N-Z. Knows, yeah, how do you say that? Nobody knows that. It's, it's hard. It doesn't roll off the tongue the same. So fair I'm enough. Just, so now, now I, now you've got me hooked. So, so the ZNE projects, yeah. uh, I know you've done, you did Massachusetts first ZNE office building. Yeah. Um, you know, what, um, what are some of the challenges in first, obviously just getting the buy-in for a ZNE I'm sure is, the first challenge, but when you're actually trying to implement that, what are, what are the challenges that you find within the design and within um, the kind of the construction process? I think the, um, the challenge is, is the physical part. Like the, the actual physics is not the challenge. It's the, it's the mental hurdle to try to figure out if it's possible 
and and communicate that to the rest of the team to make sure that they understand that it's possible. You know, it's it's a balanced of equation and you know, that project we did that was an office building, it's it's really once you do all electric and you you know, that building didn't have crazy wall types or anything um, like super insulated structures, no 40 R walls, et cetera. So it was it was a it was a very tight building, which allowed it to, um, you know, with a with a standard uh, R value wall. Um, it wasn't much better than building code, honestly, but it was a very tight envelope, which meant that it was a true R value rather than if you if you have a leaky building, then the R value doesn't really matter as much because you're losing so many BTUs through the the leaky construction. Um, so that was that was a good part of it. And then the other part is to keep the costs under control because you can, you know, if you have an unlimited budget, you can you can do some wild stuff, right? But everyone has a, a budget. And so that particular project is a few years old now, but I know that, you know, it was one of the first ones that we used triple pane windows on and triple pane glass is more expensive than double pane, right? But if you looked at the line item budget on that project, uh, the glazing and glass number doesn't jump off the page because on that particular project, they use a less percentage of glass than you might find in a typical building. So for example, I, I don't have the number on the tip of my tongue here, but it was something like, I'll use a hypothetical. It was like, you know, a typical building might be like 50% glass and 50% wall. And so that building was maybe like 35% glass, right? And so the the line item in the budget still had a, a number, you know, if you look at a per square foot number, you know, the glass per square foot of building area, was totally reasonable. It was just they used a little bit less. And if you do light studies about how light comes in the building, you know, if you have like a ribbon window versus if you have punched openings, um, this is a building podcast, right? I can get a little techni- technical. Okay. As Brian likes to say, yeah, let's yeah, get into it. <laughs> when you when you see how the light throws in, that the light actually isn't. Um, uh, the light distribution is pretty good in either case. So it's not significantly better if it's just straight glass versus if there's punched openings. And then the other thing is, you know, if it's floor to uh, ceiling glass, that helps with the tenants um, leasing the space or the landlords leasing the space to tenants. Because when you see the space unfinished, you see these amazing views. But then as soon as you start fitting it out, there's office furniture everywhere. There's people pressing their desks and their, you know, you know, cabinets and furniture up against the glass. So, you know, you, the only vision part is really above that three foot line anyway, three or four feet. So um, when it's built into it, um, you, there's ways around it. The only real added cost is going to be the solar because that's the only part that's not in a typical building. And so, um, you know, there's ways around that too. It can be whether it's through a power purchase agreement or if it's bought um, and held onto, that's a, that would be a cost add. Um, but the building itself, you know, is is not really significantly different. And I will say, even in the last five years, the push for electrification now, I think, is probably more important than the the uh, net zero part of it. Because um, as the grid gets cleaner, if you have an electrified building that's very efficient, like in a net zero uh, building would be very efficient by pretty much by definition, because you, you have to you have to do all the math and the science to make the thing work right. Um, if it's an electrified building and you know as the us is planning to clean up the grid then every year it gets cleaner and so that can be part of the solution so it's it's not like do net zero or just do code you know what i mean like you can kind of you can you can make a better building and, and maybe defer the cost of the solar um to a to a point in the future where you're more comfortable to install it if you have the budget for it and so so this may be anecdotal um or or maybe you you just see it being being the same but obviously, when you've got maybe specialty subcontractors, you know, the solar component, or if there's 
wind or, or other specialty energy components. And, and we've done been involved with um, ZNE projects where we've got different color-coded outlets for different purposes and they'd shut off at a certain time and not even be, you know, can't use them. Do you feel like projects like this, you know, sustainability projects or or ones that are kind of cutting edge, is there a higher susceptibility for disputes and issues and are there strategies or considerations that you guys use to avoid or mitigate those disputes? Um. On the dispute side, I haven't seen um, anything specific to the sustainability realm. You know, as as a construction management firm, you know, there's definitely an opportunity for for disputes. But um, as far as tying them to any of those types of specifics, um, I don't think we've had any of those like timed outlets and things like that because that could I could see that causing a certain level of education requirements for the tenants. And if they you know if they plug their refrigerator into a timed outlet or something like that, like you know there there could be problems or or you know some, maybe even something more complicated if it's a R&D facility if if there's a guy with a expensive equipment running and doesn't realize he switched something the wrong way um so i could see an opportunity there which i'm sure you're more familiar with on the dispute side but um i'd say that you know generally speaking i like the systems to be as simple as possible and so um there are some things where you know like even though i love you know i i love the outdoors i love gardens i love all these things like i think you know, I'm a builder also, and, you know, we, we spend so much time and energy getting, um, getting like water away from the building to protect the building. And so when I see like a lot of these beautiful spaces that are, um, on rooftops that are like sometimes even have irrigation on them where they're like irrigating the roof gardens, um, you know, it's not raining and we're like dumping water on the building, you know, it just, it just, it just makes me nervous. Right. And so, I like the idea of having wonderful outdoor spaces, but having them probably more ground connected. Um, and the one exception with that is that if it's a if it's an amenity where humans actually can go enjoy the feature, like if it's a if it's a roof balcony that has green space that you can go out and enjoy, that's different than sometimes they're just on a uh, an isolated roof where no humans actually go. There's no entertainment, no no. Um, restorative value. It's just up there. And generally we've seen a bunch of those uh, that not on our projects, but if we're doing like a walkthrough on an existing building that needs to be renovated and if nobody can see it, it doesn't get taken care of. Half of it's dead, half of it's full of weeds, like all that stuff. And it's just retaining water. And um, so those are the types of things that I would kind of caution against is that just because it's on the checklist and it's, you know, gets you some points, like it may not be the best spend on money. Um, a flip side, you know, we did a hospital on Martha's Vineyard and they had patients that couldn't go outside, but they had access on the floor. It was an upper floor to go out to like a roof deck area. And they had wonderful garden space out there that was maintained very well. And it was restorative for the patients that couldn't actually, you know, go outside. So there's ways, in my opinion, you can do those things that that have a lot of value um, for the humans. And otherwise, you know, you probably just want to keep that on the ground. Um, another option like that, that you said, that's kind of tailored to, um, to very smaller audiences or, or like having these more complicated systems, like different switched outlets is um, you, you're probably familiar with like the purple pipe system for like using recaptured rainwater. Um, and so up here in the Northeast where I am up in the Boston area, you know, we're, we don't have in a situation where there's um, at least not yet, where there's a uh, real water shortages. So we see that proposed on projects a lot and we haven't, we haven't built one yet because it seems like it always gets beat out because it's essentially a redundant plumbing system plus, you know, treatment that you have to pay for. And um, 
you know, it makes the buildings more complicated because now you have non-potable water in the building. And so for a variety of reasons, it just, you know, if we were in a different area that was more arid, it would make a ton of sense, I think. But uh, up here in New England, um, we're at a point where that money is probably better spent on a different system dealing with like, you know, carbon pollution or um, something like that. Do you see a difference in how public entities or private entities are allocating funds for different systems or different approaches for sustainability? I don't, uh, not, not firsthand. I think that, I think that the, the bigger the entity is, and it does make sense at some level that the, the clients we have that are larger, they tend to want the certification. Cause I think it's an easy way to maintain a standard across a larger portfolio. They just say, you know, the corner office just says we're going for lead or something like that. And then that way, all the other decisions have to follow behind it. And the clients that are generally, um, you know, still quite large in their market, maybe, but maybe not as national or maybe not, you know, as big of a portfolio of buildings, they might they might be more interested in like, okay, this is our small building or a handful of buildings, even if it's not small. Like if we have one or two locations, we might treat them differently than if we have a portfolio of a hundred buildings. Um, and so that's where I think I see the difference in in how they pursue sustainability. Interesting. Um, so I guess to kind of go along with that, you know, overall, what types of trends are you seeing? I know we've kind of touched on a bunch of them uh, in our 30 minutes already, but what, what types of trends are you seeing, um, you know, within the industry? So a trend that I'm seeing for construction is that um, there's definitely more pressure on us. And it's a good pressure, I think, to try to figure out um you know, they're calling it like the carbon footprint or the embodied carbon of the materials. And so if you think about it this way, you know, if, if there's a if there's a finite amount of carbon that collectively the economy can put into the air, um, you know, from an environmental point of view, it seems like it doesn't really matter too much if it all comes out today or if it comes out in the future because it's still going to be there, right? So we have to figure out, you know, like like now carbon is is potentially worse than emitting carbon in the future i guess and so part of that is the 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 simplicity of of zne or net zero energy buildings that was like a interesting problem to try to solve a few years ago and thankfully most of the design teams um have a good handle on like the practical way to kind of go to that path if it's not gonna hit net zero or net positive then you know get very close um or have it be an electrified building with that that's actually a big trend right now it's just straight up electrification and then let the grid um clean up uh behind you and uh, and solve it that way but the other part is when you build this project like how many what's the carbon emissions related to creation of the building itself and so there are some you mentioned some of the technology and tools now too so there's two that i'll, I'll plug here that i don't personally have any involvement in but structural engineering um they have a, a commitment they call the the SE2050. Uh, it's a commitment, and they have a embodied carbon estimator. It's like an order of magnitude calculator on their website. So using you know different mixes of concrete, different types of steel, different quantities and weights and all that stuff, you can kind of get like a order. They call it the order of magnitude calculator. So you can kind of figure out like oh like you know if I use this cement or if I use this much steel or this design of my structure because that's where a lot of the embodied carbon is um, being emitted. That um, that's a good tool. And there's another one called the uh, uh, the Embodied Carbon and Construction Calculator, which is they they abbreviated as EC3. 
Um, so you can look that one up and it kind of gives you the, the point of those two tools, as far as I understand it, is you still get the same building at the end of the day. You know, it's a, it's the same type of I-beam or whatever, the same properties. It's going to be just as strong, right size, right length and everything. But depending on how they make that, if it's a basic oxygen burning bur- furnace burning coal, or if it's an electric arc mill using recycled content and sourcing renewable energy, you get the same physical piece out the end but the carbon emissions could be like drastically different. And so that's that's something that the contractors and the designers are trying to partner on right now is figuring out how do we source this stuff from companies that are lowering their carbon emissions? Because when it gets to the job site, you can't tell what the difference is. You can't look at it and say, this one's better or that one's lower carbon. It's really about the process that it's made that gets the same product in the end. So a lot of these, um, you know, trends and moving through and, and embracing sustainability, obviously some of it's going to be driven by the government and by regulations. Some of it's going to be get driven by bottom line. Uh, you said earlier, but when we were just chatting that, you know, Columbia, you guys want to be a leader in this and you're not a leader if no one's following you and you guys put out, um, you know, kind of your guidance and and viewpoints on these types of things. Uh, I guess in closing, what would you, you know, is there anything you want to impart or share or think is just kind of this overarching consideration that everyone should kind of move forward with in in this, uh, in this space? Sure. Yeah. I think I appreciate the opportunity to to make a comment on that. Um, I think generally speaking that, you know, if, if this is something that you're trying to do in your personal life and you're thinking about it when you're purchasing product and you're, you know, maybe you're buying healthier food or, you know, organic food and maybe you're thinking about lowering your carbon footprint with an electric car or like you probably do curbside recycling if it's available in your town. If these are things you do on a personal level, I would ask that, you know, you think about the leverage that you and maybe a collection of people like you at your companies could have because, there's a very good chance that the companies that you work at have a significant impact in some way too. So trying to figure out how you can have the same value system at home and at work is probably something that would have a lot of impact. It's, um, you know, it's an all hands on deck type of moment that we're in here. And so to look at the opportunities, you know, I think people sometimes can fall into the blame game and it's like, you want somebody else to do something, right? It's like somebody should do something. There's a crisis. And, you know, yes, that might be true. And there's a lot of opportunity to finger point about how we got here. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're acting, if you're making personal decisions to act in a more sustainable way, then it might be worth trying to figure out how you can assist your company in doing something similar, because they probably have a bigger impact than you do. Um, And if you're talking about building specific, you know, there's a group, uh, if you Google probably um, like building green, all one word, uh, it's a group up in Vermont, non-for-profit agency, and they've kind of helped the contractors get together for this contractor's commitment to sustainable building practices. And so you can kind of mess around with that and see um, what we've developed. And um, again, we're, we're iterating on that. So if you want to participate and be part of that conversation, then there's an opportunity to join that group and you know maybe influence the future iterations of what it what a green contractor is and the definition and how it's reported and all that. So there is an opportunity for you to join and in that if you are a construction management firm or a general contractor. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think that was a great conversation. Kind of got me thinking about what I should uh, be doing internally at our company and maybe bringing some things up because you're right. You know if. Uh, 
you kind of forget the impact that you can have as an individual and you do things on your own personal basis. But when you're part of a company and can have these conversations, uh, you actually can obviously make a, make a bigger dent. So Connor, thanks a lot for, for joining us today. Um, again, great discussion and appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss any insights from future guests.